Chapter 2 of A Confession by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Almer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some day I will narrate the touching and instructive history of my life during those ten years of my youth. I think very many people have had a like experience. With all my soul I wished to be good, but I was young, passionate, and alone, completely alone, when I sought goodness. Every time I tried to express my most sincere desire, which was to be morally good, I met with contempt and ridicule, but as soon as I yielded to low passions, I was praised and encouraged. Ambition, love of power, covetousness, lasciviousness, pride, anger, and revenge were all respected. Yielding to those passions, I became like the grown-up folk and felt that they approved of me. The kind aunt with whom I lived, herself the purest of beings, always told me that there was nothing she so desired for me as that I should have relations with a married woman. Rien ni form u hune hom com una liaison eves un femme comme le faux. Another happiness she desired for me was that I should become an aide de camp, and if possible, aide de camp to the emperor. But the greatest happiness of all would be that I should marry a very rich girl, and so become possessed of as many serfs as possible. I cannot think of those years without horror, loathing, and heartache. I killed men in war and challenged men to duels in order to kill them. I lost at cards, consumed the labor of the peasants, sentenced them to punishments, lived loosely and deceived people. Lying, robbery, adultery of all kinds, drunkenness, violence, murder, there was no crime I did not commit, and in spite of that, people praised my conduct and my contemporaries considered and consider me to be a comparatively moral man. So I lived for ten years. During that time, I began to write from vanity, covetousness, and pride. In my writings, I did the same as in my life. To get fame and money, for the sake of which I wrote, it was necessary to hide the good and to display the evil, and I did so. How often in my writings I contrived to hide under the guise of indifference or even of banter those strivings of mine towards goodness which gave meaning to my life, and I succeeded in this and was praised. At twenty-six years of age I returned to Petersburg after the war and met the writers. They received me as one of themselves and flattered me. And before I had time to look round, I had adopted the views on life of the set of authors I had come among, and these views completely obliterated all my former strivings to improve. They furnished a theory that justified the dissoluteness of my life. The view of life of these people, my comrades in authorship, consisted in this, that life in general goes on developing, and in this development we, men of thought, have the chief part, and among men of thought it is we, artists and poets, who have the greatest influence. Our vocation is to teach mankind. And lest a simple question should suggest itself, what do I know and what can I teach, it was explained that in this theory it need not be known, that the artist and the poet teach unconsciously. I was considered an admirable artist and poet, and therefore it was very natural for me to adopt this theory. I, artist and poet, wrote and taught without myself knowing what. For this I was paid money. I had excellent food, lodging, women, and society, and I had fame which showed that what I taught was very good. This faith in the meaning of poetry and in the development of life was a religion, and I was one of its priests. To be its priest was very pleasant and profitable, and I lived a considerable time in this faith without doubting its validity. But in the second and still more third year of this life, I began to doubt the infallibility of this religion and to examine it. My first cause of doubt was that I began to notice that the priests of this religion were not at all in accord amongst themselves. Some said, we are the best and most useful teachers. We teach what is needed, but the others teach wrongly. Others said, No, we are the real teachers, and you teach wrongly. 
and they disputed, quarreled, abused, cheated, and tricked one another. There were also many among us who did not care who was right and who was wrong, but were simply bent on attaining their covetous aims by means of this activity of ours. All this obliged me to doubt the validity of our creed. Moreover, having begun to doubt the truth of the authors' creed itself, I also began to observe its priests more attentively, and I became convinced that almost all the priests of that religion, the writers, were immoral, and for the most part men of bad, worthless character, much inferior to those who I had met in my former dissipated and military life, but they were self-confident and self-satisfied as only they can be, who are quite holy or who do not know what holiness is. These people revolted me. I became revolting to myself, and I realized that that faith was a fraud. But strange to say, though I understood this fraud and renounced it, yet I did not renounce the rank these people gave me, the rank of artist, poet, and teacher. I naively imagined that I was a poet and artist and could teach everybody, without myself knowing what I was teaching, and acted accordingly. From my intimacy with these men I acquired a new vice, abnormally developed pride and an insane assurance that it was my vocation to teach men, without knowing what. To remember that time in my own state of mind, and that of those men, though there are thousands like them today, is sad and terrible and ludicrous, and arouses exactly the feeling one experiences in a lunatic asylum. We were all then convinced that it was necessary for us to speak, write, and print as quickly as possible, and as much as possible, and that it was all wanted for the good of humanity, and thousands of us, contradicting and abusing one another, all printed and wrote, teaching others, and without noticing that we knew nothing, and that to the simplest of life's questions, what is good and what is evil, we did not know how to reply, we all talked at the same time, not listening to one another, sometimes seconding and praising one another in order to be seconded and praised in turn, sometimes getting angry with one another, just like in a lunatic asylum. Thousands of workmen labored to the extreme limit of their strength day and night, setting the type and printing millions of words which the post carried all over Russia, and still we went on teaching, and could in no way find time to teach enough, and we were always angry that sufficient attention was not paid to us. It was terribly strange, but now it is quite comprehensible. Our real innermost concern was to get as much money and praise as possible. To gain that end, we could do nothing except write books and papers. So we did that. But in order to get such useless work and to feel assured that we were very important people, we required a theory justifying our activity. And so among us, this theory was devised. All that exists is reasonable, all that exists develops. And it all develops by the means of culture and culture is measured by the circulation of books and newspapers. And we are paid money and are respected because we write books and newspapers, and therefore we are the most useful and the best of men. This theory would have all been very well if we had been unanimous, but as every thought expressed by one of us was always met by diametrically opposite thought expressed by another, we ought to have been driven to reflection. But we ignored this. People paid us money and those on our side praised us, so each of us considered himself justified. It is now clear to me that this was just as in a lunatic asylum, but then I only dimly suspected this, and like all lunatics, simply called all men lunatics except myself. End of chapter 2